you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which we'll be finishing today. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Last week, we began by remembering that the context of an earlier chapter, chapter 8, the one that contained the eating meat offered to idols issue, was very obviously dealing with one of the many problems, serious problems in this Corinthian church. And what Paul taught them about voluntarily surrendering their liberty in that chapter in order to genuinely love their brothers and sisters in Christ was actually the solution to many of their other issues. We noted that Paul is building up to a whole chapter on this subject in chapter 13. So in chapter 9, to illustrate this loving your fellow believers point in a way that they should never forget, Paul shows how he, as an apostle of Christ, was willing to forego any and all of his Christian liberties and rights for the sake of the gospel. His point was that if believers treated each other with anything other than grace and love, the gospel message would be undermined and rendered powerless in the eyes of all those who needed it. The glory of Christ must not be diminished by his own people, especially in the eyes of non-believers. Paul's defense of his apostolic authority in chapter 9 is actually a way, his way, of providing the Christian church in Corinth with his own personal example of how to love and serve the Lord by loving and serving one another. As a result, we get a very up-close and personal account of his own ministry and his own calling. And in the first half of chapter 9 that we looked at last week, Paul first establishes several things. First, what the marks of a true apostle are. Seeing Christ and being called by Christ himself to be his own apostle. And then secondly, Paul establishes what rights Apostles have the right to be provided their room and board by the church they serve, which is the implied meaning of what Paul is saying when he says the right to eat and drink, and the right to take along their believing wife if they're married, and the right to be able to labor full time in the ministry of the gospel. Paul then gave three examples of this provision principle being applied in everyday life. Soldiers, farmers, and shepherds. Each person in these occupations either had their expenses covered by what they did 
or they were able to receive the fruit of their particular kind of labor. Lastly, Paul appealed to Scripture specifically to the uh, Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 25 about not muzzling the ox. So he did quite a lot building a foundation to understand this provision principle. And he summed it up in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9. If we have so spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So now in the middle of chapter 9, for most of the rest of chapter 9, through verse, about verse 23, the Apostle Paul explains why he has chosen not to make use of his rights. See what he did? First, he had to establish what they were. And then he tells us basically why he has chosen not to make use of those. Yes, this is quite an abrupt change, of course. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. From the middle of verse 12 through the end of the chapter in verse 27. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship, what then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, 
that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete who competes exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe see it. Now, what is Paul getting at by providing his own personal example? Well, what he's getting at shouldn't be a complete surprise to these people. Because in the last verse of verse 8, he said basically the same thing. Paul had written there, Therefore, if food makes my brothers stumble, then I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. But this idea of putting others' needs before our own is just so counterintuitive. It's so revolutionary It's so unselfish that no one just naturally does it. Not only do these folks need to remember that this is what Christ did for us and so be told that this is what following Christ looks like, they also need to see how this apostle of Christ, Paul, chooses to exercise his freedom in Christ by not making use of his rights. It's his choice. Why? So that no obstacle is put in the way of the advance in the proclamation and application of the gospel. Now, in the second half of verse 12 in chapter 9, we read, Nevertheless, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Obstacle here is an interesting word, but it fits very well. Here it refers to a cutting of some sort, like that made in a road to hinder or impede an advancing army. See how that fits? In verses 13 and 14, Paul reminds them once again of the biblical mandate for the people of God to provide for those who minister to them. And most people would be going, yeah, 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 we heard that already. We know that already. Why is he saying it again? Because it needs to be emphasized again. For the seventh time in this letter, He asks the question, do you not know? 
And the last time he asked it in this book is also in this chapter. Meaning what? He's saying you do know this. This is something that you know. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Where did Jesus do that? That comes from Matthew 10, verse 10. So Paul has just made sure the Old Testament principle, which is very clear and all the Jews knew, is understood to apply to the new covenant ministers of the gospel. And notice in verse 15 how Paul makes sure they don't assume that he has any ulterior motive for bringing all this up. And I hope none of you have any thoughts of an ulterior motive coming from me on this particular subject. This is where it's very good that we go through books of the Bible verse by verse by verse. We don't skip any. And you might notice that we don't keep going back to the same one over and over and over. What's he saying, verse 15? But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. He makes sure that they are clear in understanding that he will continue not accepting financial support. Paul is not saying that any other minister of the gospel has to follow this example. This is his own individual choice. He's also displaying here a great amount of emotion. And you're thinking, Paul? Well, just think about all the letters that he's written where he does the same thing. There's a reason why in the middle of some great doctrinal statement where he's glorifying the God who saved him, he just goes off this way or that way and keeps going and writes sentences that take up a whole column in your Bibles. Why? He's showing his emotion that comes out in his writing. And this is one of the places. This is a real short phrase here, grammatically speaking. For I would rather die. And it communicates very well how he really feels about his calling as an apostle. And in fact, this is a weird place in the New Testament because the grammar here actually indicates that he broke off the sentence before he continued. In other words, he says, for I would rather die then, and it just kind of disappears. And when it's translated into English, a lot of people have tried to keep the thought going. And it's kind of hard to do because he just bursts out with this. So what means so much to him? Well, he tells us. 
he was overcome with emotion here because he was so aware of what God had done for him when he knew that he deserved exactly the opposite. So he was overjoyed to give himself completely to the privilege of serving Christ. So much so that he didn't want the Corinthians to be able to see anything but the gospel being proclaimed and being applied and loved and appreciated and delivered. His boasting is in the fact that he can and that he is able to deliver and advance the gospel free of charge. That's his boast. You ever give somebody the most special gift in the world and you could care less what it costs? It's a little taste of what Paul's saying. In verses 16 and 17, Paul explains this even further because his calling and appointment to apostleship, those things were very unique. He didn't have a normal, quote unquote, kind of testimony. Because he was appointed to preach, he did not see that task as a reason for boasting. Instead, his commission from the Lord compelled him to preach. What does he say? Woe to me if I don't preach. And you notice what he says he is? In that regard, he was actually a steward, he says in verse 17. A steward. You know, a steward in the first century in the ancient world usually were slaves who were given the responsibility of managing their master's household, estate, or financial affairs. How much adulation do you think they got for doing what they were expected to do? Not much. Paul's looking at that side of it, and he's saying simply that he has to do it, but he's also said that he wants to because it means absolutely everything to him to bring the message that God used to save him when Christ appeared to him, bring the message about that Christ to everyone that he could. His reward, he says in verse 18, is being able to freely choose not to accept payment for his work in the ministry. He was excited about that. That was his reward. Good old tent maker. Perhaps a more modern day example will help us understand this even better. This is similar in a few ways to a doctor who chooses to take care of the poor without charge. The poor who really need it. And he feels rewarded 
for being able to do so. Does that help? In verses 19 through 23, Paul explains his strategy in gospel ministry. Strategy in gospel ministry. And as we go through this, I want you to think about how his strategy compares to many, many such strategies that we hear in our own day. In these verses, Paul leaves the subject of not insisting upon his right for financial support. And now everybody can go, amen, okay, we got that. He focuses now on other areas of his life in which he had forfeited his right to freedom in order to win more to Christ. Now we need to remember something. We need to remember the very difficult circumstances of ministering in a place like Corinth. Paul had to deal with two very different cultures, almost opposite extremes. Jewish Christians who had been living by the Mosaic Law and Gentile Christians who were free from the law of Moses and probably never heard much about it ever. How could he preach the gospel to both groups and at the same time bring them together in one community of believers? Not to mention pastoring those who had weak consciences. He had to speak to all the thorny issues that divided the people in this church. And it's for this reason that he wanted to be free so that he could be of service to them all. That's the point of him bringing all this to bear in this letter. Did you catch that? Do you have that? It's for this reason that he wanted to be free so that he could be of service to everyone in that body. In other words, he didn't have to take sides or join one of the groups. His whole point was that he was ministering Christ to them all. In other words, he had to understand very well his own liberty in Christ in order to navigate the minefield of shepherding a flock that was demonstrating so many attitudes contrary to loving one another. I don't know if you've ever thought about that too much. What it's like on the other side of being a recipient of the gospel to thinking about the men, especially in, let's stay in the first century, who had to minister to such diverse groups for so many reasons. It's amazing to me, as we go through this letter, that he just comes right out and tells them all this. And what's at stake? In a written letter read to these people, gathered together for worship. There's no politicking. There's no censoring to make it palatable. 
There's no any of that. He's just telling them the truth. And his love for them comes out over and over and over and over again because it forces them to look where? Not to him. That's his whole reason for ministering this way. He's getting them to look to their common denominator, which is God Almighty through Christ his Son. In other words, his strategy is not hidden or secret or devious or just for the ones that can figure it out. Instead, he just tells them the truth. Imagine if a personal letter was written to us that dealt with your personal issues from someone who knew them well. You couldn't just drop on the floor in the aisle. It's not that much room. We've only got a couple of doors to escape. Do you see what these people did? They were listening because Paul's letter was to them because he cared about them and even more about the glory of Christ as he wrote. In verse 19, he gets even more explicit. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. See the purpose? The Christian Standard Bible here says, Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. That really covers the basis there. Explains what was implied by the grammar. There is no way Paul could tell them all this without them knowing by his own example when he was there with them that, yes, this was the way Paul lived among us. We saw him serving all of us in many of these different ways. And you've got to recognize that to understand what he's saying. He's not writing as some guru off across the sea over in Turkey that they never saw. He founded this church. He knew most of the people. They knew him. He and the other couple that helped start this church, also tent makers, these people saw him providing for their living. When? Well, in whatever spare time they had, spare time in quotes. He saw how they went to visit them, how they ate meals with them, how they were caring about how they viewed the world, how the Jews viewed it differently than the Greeks, how the slaves fit in amongst all these people. This is an incredible story he's telling us here. Because he was free in Christ, 
he's able to relate to every believer in the Corinthian church. He has full apostolic rights to be free from any human control here. But he chooses to be what? A servant to all the Corinthian believers. Who is he imitating? It's an easy question. He's imitating his Savior. Just think what you know about the Gospels and how Jesus interacted with all sorts of different people. And he got nailed, no pun intended for it, at certain dinners when he ate with sinners and turned right around and then went into the synagogue as a Jew. goes on and on and on and on and on. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Usually we stop right there. Well, let's keep going. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul is imitating his Savior. He was not in some kind of competition with other apostles about who could bring more people to Christ so they could put the numbers on the wall. Or send out more support cards? He genuinely hopes to see more come to Christ through the strategy of being what? A servant to all. That's his strategy. Verses 20 through 22, he tells the Corinthians what his strategy was with each group of them. I had to stop when I realized what he was doing here. They're all, they're all in this gathering worshiping God. And then he knows how they're divided. Now, I don't know whether they sit in the same places like you guys do. But you're not necessarily sitting because of a group. You're sitting on a place because you know that the air conditioners are over here. And the heat goes this way and it goes over here. So you've, you figured that out. Some of you still haven't figured it out, but maybe you will now. It's different on each side. But Paul writes to these different groups, each one. Look what he says. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. 
This is one of those passages that has been so misinterpreted and misapplied so many times by so many people that it's even hard to hear what it means. But we're going to try, okay? To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So here Paul, who was, as he says in Philippians 3, 5, and 6, born a Jew and was known as a Hebrew of Hebrews, one of the most committed and brilliant Jews ever, he now writes that when with them, he, what, became a Jew in order to win Jews. Now, if you're awake, that should be startling. He was a Jew. What is that telling us? It's a very important observation. Here, he realizes that becoming a follower of Christ, he is now a new creation. And so no longer Jew, Greek, or anything else, but a Christian in Christ. His identity is in Christ. He did, when with the Jews, adapt himself to Jewish customs, which he knew rather well. And here are a few examples that have thrown many people over the years when they come across this. He had Timothy circumcised, quote, because of the Jews in Acts 16. He made a Nazarite vow to express thanks to God for being delivered in Acts 18. He joined four Nazarite guys in their purification rites and paid their expenses for the sacrificial offering, again in Acts 21. He often wanted to demonstrate that he had no objections to obeying the law of Moses. In Christ, Paul was no longer bound to the ceremonies, rituals, and the traditions of Judaism. This means he knew that following or not following them had absolutely no effect on his spiritual life. So if following them could open a door for a witness to be heard, he gladly accommodated it. Now, if you've swallowed that, we can go on. If you need a few minutes, I'll just stop. That's a lot to think about. But what about the next one? Verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Who are these people? The Gentiles. Paul mainly has in view the Gentiles who had no written revelation from God. And again, he says, he takes his place among them in order to reach them with the gospel, which means he went into their house. He ate all food that the Jews were going, that's not kosher. And they were having a hard time understanding that. We've already found that out in this book. And he immediately 
makes it clear that he's not talking about ignoring or violating God's moral law. That is not on the table. Especially explained by saying that he is under the law of Christ, who is the fulfillment of all the law. What about the law of Christ? Well, the Old Testament makes clear that committing murder is sin, but what did Christ say commits murder? means committing murder. Being angry with your brother. Even calling him a fool. What did Christ say constitutes murder? Inordinate anger towards your brother. Calling him a fool. See how this works? Adultery is sin. Old Testament law, but Jesus said, what else? Lust is. Sin comes out of sinful hearts. So Paul is not saying he compromises moral standards by being all things to the Gentiles. He is saying that in other matters, like what they eat or even where they go, unless it's to the temple to worship Dionysus, okay? So don't get carried away here too much. Or how they dress, etc., etc. He can identify with them in a way that allows him to communicate an uncompromised gospel. Another way to grow in this area is to ask ourselves something. Ask ourselves whether we really know how our non-Christian loved ones and neighbors and friends and co-workers think about and view their world. Do we have a good sense of their hopes and aspirations? Do we know enough about these people to be able to talk and ask questions in words and languages that they understand. This is why Christians who go out in the middle of West Texas somewhere where nobody is and decide to live together and try to grow one tree for the whole group and they don't interact with anybody else in the whole state are wrong. Our job is not to escape it in the sense of just getting rid and going somewhere where like-minded people are all we ever see. In other words, we have a tough calling in our day as well because not everybody claims the same moral ground that we do anymore. In fact, they think it's absolutely ridiculous. So we have many, many battles ahead to stand firm ourselves first in the midst of it and doing well to guard those little ones that we cherish. But this, it, this requires so much more study, talk, And work amongst ourselves to figure this out and encourage each other in it. We get a sense 
that Paul knew very well how these people from these different cultures thought. What did they think about their kids? What hopes did they have for their children, their families, their work, their whatever, everything in life? A lot of times it's so different, we don't even bother thinking or trying to know that. Verse 22, we see him change gears again. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. The weak, remember, are the people who did not yet have the understanding to grasp the gospel. They tended to think of most things in terms of, can I do that or not do that? Will I get in trouble or not? We get the sense in this letter that Paul dealt very graciously and patiently with those who needed more time to see beyond their immediate perceptions of the spiritual and that many did come to faith here because he addresses them. Now imagine that. The whole congregation knew pretty much who all he was talking about in all of these groups. And a note for all of us, if a person is offended by God's word or biblical doctrine or standards or church discipline, that's his problem because it means he's offended by God. But if he's offended by our unnecessary behavior or practices, no matter how good and acceptable those may be in themselves, his problem becomes our problem. This means that the problem is not a problem about law per se, but a problem about love. And love always demands more than the law. Paul closes this section with several illustrations from the world in sports. Yes, it's in the Bible. And Seth's not here. <laughs> Why is this here? The second most important athletic event in the Mediterranean world. What's the most important one? The Olympics. That's in the Greece that Corinth is kind of attached to on the north side. Okay. Took place right there, only 10 miles from Corinth. It was called the Isthmian Games. Some of you know what an isthmus is. An isthmus is. It's a narrow piece of land that connects two bigger pieces of land, Panama. Okay, Corinth was right in the middle between the southern part of Greece, I'm doing it from your perspective, attached to the main part of Greece up here where Athens was on. Okay, So that's what it was called. They met every other year and had these games. It was a big deal. And he says here, here's that, here's that question again. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete who competes exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. 
But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Again, he's saying, you know this, but Paul, even though a Jew, isn't oblivious to these Greek games. It's his personal example coming out again. The Jews didn't have the Jewish, whatever, kosher Olympics. And the dress code for a lot of these events, let's just say it was lacking. Do you understand? He uses running and boxing to communicate spiritual parallels. Basically, he's telling them to run spiritually like these runners do physically, with all out effort that's necessary to win. This is a picture of the intentional and purposeful, intense training necessary to be able to race. They had qualifying. And somebody from some country that didn't even know what bobsledding was could not enter these games and do that event if they had it when they knew they would be not just last, but, you know, so far behind you couldn't even, they, they weren't even close. This, these were super competitive where only the best showed up and people came from all over this area of the world to watch and compete. One of the Greek words here in our text refers to the agony of the struggle of training. Remember the old, what was that, ABC or NBC, the agony of defeat? Well, he's talking about the agony of training necessary to win. The prize in these games, he said, is imperishable. You know what it was? It was a pine or parsley wreath. Wow. And it fell apart very soon afterwards. It's a great point Paul shows here. In contrast to the Christian's crown of eternal life and fellowship with God Almighty forever. Now there's also some noteworthy observations here and applications. All believers are participating in a spiritual race even though there's not just one spiritual winner. We all go, yeah. But, you know, not I, I don't think Christians get this. I don't care who you are. If you are a believer in Christ, you are in this spiritual race. You cannot sit on the bench. You're not in the crowd watching. You are in it whether you want to be or not. That's how he's talking. Do we take our spiritual life seriously, as Paul suggests? Are you engaged in exerting yourself and applying spiritual truth in everyday life? Do you know how to train in such a way? He says in verse 26, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What in the world? 
Does aimless currently describe your life in general? How about your commitment to the Lord? We've got to ask these questions. Are you growing in purpose and precision and skill in your spiritual boxing match? Are you just flailing away, missing everything? Or do you spend way too much time wasting your punches, missing your targets, spinning your wheels? Paul's point in the boxing metaphor probably does not, probably includes not missing opportunities for the proclamation and the application of the gospel. You know, you ever come home after being out and about and you come home and you go, oh man, I could have I asked that guy a question. I could at least pray for him when I drove off. Okay, this is what this is talking about. Missing opportunities. You miss opportunities when you don't see yourself as a vessel used by your Lord to represent him, whether it's talking or being respectful or whatever it, whatever it is. Paul's point points here are very, very, very good. The last part of verse 27 points us in an interesting direction. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So after all that he's written, Paul applies all these questions to himself. I think the best explanation of disqualified comes when we consider all the warning texts that we see elsewhere in the New Testament. Some interpreters say that disqualified means that Paul might lose his reward in ministry, but not his salvation. That one's the easiest to swallow. But I don't know if it's necessarily that fitting. Does Paul's comment here fit with his theology of grace? See, this is a complex question, is it not? It's still evident that warnings and exhortations to persevere to the end are common in the New Testament. At the same time, what do we see? Promises that God will preserve his people until the final day. I think it is best to understand that the warnings and admonitions in the New Testament are one of the fundamental means used to preserve Christians in the faith. There's a tension there. In other words, we can't just go, yeah, I'm in. Now I can just be whatever I want to be. Or the other extreme. I don't think I am, so I'm just going to do all this stuff, but I don't want to, but I'm going to do it all anyway. The older brother syndrome. And as... We respond to warnings. Our assurance is not threatened, but actually deepened. Why? How? The need to run the race to the end, that didn't fill Paul with doubt or shake his confidence. Instead, the admonition to run the race stimulated him to continue in the faith. We don't like tension like this. We want it all be worked out, planned, and smooth. And anybody that's lived any time at all knows that that is not the way life is a lot of the time. And we've 
got to be okay with that. Perseverance. His perseverance strengthened his confidence that he would receive final salvation. Those who do not persevere reveal that they were not genuine to begin with. And Paul actually says something like that in chapter 11 here of this book. Therefore, perseverance is the mark of a true believer. Not the stake in your backyard with a date on it when you made a confession of faith or something else. That may be true, but perseverance is the mark of a true believer. Over a long period of time. So look around. These are the people you're walking with in the local body of Christ, persevering together. I kind of like the group. I need you. We need each other. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are amazed again by the way you've used Paul to write to this church and it speaks so much to our own hearts even though we don't understand a lot of the cultural things that Paul had to deal with. We are learning that we need to really try harder to understand the world that we live in even here. And God, we, we know you have a purpose for us to bring honor and glory to yourself so that people can see who you are and what your great gift is in Christ Jesus, your Son. We pray that you'd open our eyes and our hearts to the truth of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? All you guys that were gone last week, I just want you to know that we were through 20 minutes early last week. (laughs) Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, Through Jesus Christ, to whom whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.